confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com, code GLOW. This black guy came up to me, who's the same age as me, mm-hmm. and he was like, yeah, I'm called Dwayne. And I was like, hey, Dwayne, how you doing? <laughs> and he was like, so I've seen your book about, um, and I want to read it, but I'm a boy, and it feels weird because you're a girl. And I- Hello, and welcome to the Feminists Don't Wear Pink podcast, based on the book, Feminists Don't Wear Pink and Other Lies, a collection of essays by 52 women on what feminism means to them. I'm your host, Scarlett Curtis. I'm a writer, activist, proud feminist, and curator of our book and host of this podcast. This episode was recorded live in Nottingham with June Sarpong and Candice Carty-Williams. June Sarpong, MBE, is a TV presenter, world-leading diversity expert, and award-winning author of Diversify and the Power of Women, She is a pillar of British media culture, the co-founder of the WIE Network and presenter of Sky News' current affairs discussion show, The Pledge. She began her career as a DJ and has gone on to grace practically every major British TV and radio station. Throughout her career, she has used her platform to create opportunities for women of colour and advocate tirelessly for causes she believes in. She is one of my heroes and it was a joy to interview her. Candice Carty-Williams, our other guest, is an author, book marketer and sometime journalist based in South London. Candice worked in the media before moving into publishing at age 23. In 2016, Candice created and launched the Guardian and Ford Estate Fame Short Story Prize before moving to vintage books. Her debut novel, Queenie, was the reason I was desperate to interview her. It has stormed the bestseller list, been called a black political Bridget Jones, and in my opinion, it is one of the most important, hilarious, heartbreaking, honest, beautiful, stunning portrayals of womanhood, sex, race, PTSD, and, spoiler alert, it is the best case ever for why everyone should be in therapy. It is an absolutely amazing book, and if you have a holiday coming up, please read it. I really hope you enjoy this episode with June Sarpong and Candice Carty-Williams. Hi guys. Okay, question one. June, are you a feminist? Yes, of course. Check. Okay, good. Candice, are you a feminist? Yes. Yes. Very good. Okay, Um, that's all clear now. I'm still hoping that one day someone's going to be like, no, hate those women. Um, I want to start by asking you both when you first started calling yourself a feminist and what your perception of feminism was like growing up. Yeah, sure. 
Um, well, for, for me, I think from day one, I was uh, raised uh, in a household of very strong Ghanaian women. Um, and our culture is matriarchal, um, so women are at the pillar uh, of society. And the men know it, and they're happier for it. Um, and so I was raised by women who were opinionated and unapologetic about that. So that was what I always knew, and I didn't know that that was a problem until actually I got in went to school and then you know I was sort of pulled up for talking too much which in the end worked out too um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so I think being around these fabulous women who understood their power and and exercised their power mm -hmm. on a daily basis was very um grounding for me um I grew up in a, like a matriarch yeah. so I'm from a Caribbean family um but weirdly my nan would always be like, granddad has to have dinner first. And so I was like, no, I don't know what's going on here. Um, so I was like, you seem to have all the power, but he has, he, he has more dinner because first. he gets dinner first. Um, and so I was kind of growing up in that and being like, well, I don't really, don't really know what's going on. But my godmother is a professor of feminism and I would go wow. to her house quite a lot. Um, and when I was maybe like 11, I was like, what is this word? Please tell me. Because my mum doesn't engage in that sort of thing at all. She's just like, have you got a boyfriend yet? Like all the time. Um, and so, so when my, my godmother explained this concept to me mm -hmm. and I was like, yes, I think that's right. Um, because I'm really, I've always been like very pro-women and I'm kind mm -hmm. of like, yeah. I don't listen to what men have to say. I'm um, already doing so this and I didn't know. It. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that was it. Um, I feel like my mum is similar in that she never told me she was femi like she what feminism was. Yeah. yeah, she is. But I sometimes think if she had been... I wouldn't be a feminist. I'd have like rebelled yeah, by being true. like, yeah. oh no, yeah. hate those women. <laughs> I'm gonna <laughs> serve all the men first. <laughs> um, June, this is a question for you, but you've been fighting for women's rights since long before it became a trend mm. and people like me decided to use it as a way to make friends um, <laughs> because I didn't have any before I became a feminist. Um, Luckily, you've made lots of friends from it, so Yeah, genuinely, okay. I just go for me to people and I'm like, do you want to change a law? Also, have lunch with me. <laughs> um, do you think things have gotten better? Or in other words, please tell me they have gotten better so we don't all lose hope. Um, well, we know that progress isn't always linear mm -hmm. and that actually if we take our eye off the ball, things like what's happened in Alabama uh, and Georgia, uh, that happens. And so I think what we must remember is, particularly with the, the law uh, in Georgia, is that the actual person who drafted the bill is a woman. Mm. There were two women at the head of that bill. Yeah. And then obviously the 27 men voted it into law. And I think what we mustn't forget, particularly those of us that see ourselves as progressive, is often we think that, of course, everybody's going to agree with us, mm. and therefore we're complacent and we're not as engaged as we should be. And I think what this has shown is that, you know what, elections have consequences. And obviously, particularly there, there was a lot of um, voter suppression, and we know that um, he didn't really win that election, but still they were able to out-organize the progressives. Yeah. And so what this says to anybody who cares about women's rights, anybody that cares about inclusion, and anybody cares about creating a society where everybody can be the best that they can be, is that you have to be engaged. You cannot sit on the sidelines mm -hmm. anymore because when we do, this is the sort of thing that happens. And yeah. we shouldn't think that, oh, it can only happen in America. You know, nobody would have thought that 
the Brexit party is likely to win the European yeah. elections. Nobody would have thought that. So, yeah. yes, the main thing is you have to be engaged and you have to make sure that you're in the game to change yeah. it. I completely agree. Um, yeah, you have to stay vigilant. Yeah. Otherwise, they come up. I also think it's important to note those were... Yeah. It's mostly white women that are <laughs> pro-Trump. Well, you said that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think we all need to be clear on that. Um, okay, I want to talk about Queenie because we've been on stage for five minutes and I yes. haven't fangirled yet and um, think I'm going to explode. Um, the book is so incredible. It's so important. It's so funny. It's so heartbreaking. It's so beautiful. We've been talking about stage, about how hard she's finally taking compliments, so I feel bad now <laughs> listing my book essay on why I loved it so much. Um, but one of the things that I think a lot of people have pointed out and that I found particularly fascinating is that this book has been kind of categorized as this category of fiction that for some reason we often degrade as chiclet. Mm. And we kind of use that as an overall term to describe basically any book about women yeah. that has a pink cover. I remember when I was at school once, my English teacher told me to never read a book with the cover was pink. So I proved him wrong. Hello. Um, what made you decide, were you aware that the book was going to be perceived that way? And what made you decide to write this story, which is very much, it's about race, it's about trauma, it's about women, it's about everything. What made you, how do you feel about it being categorised as chocolate? It's a weird thing. I think, it's, I, I don't really mind, mm. just because when... I, I love was, it. I mean, thank you. Well, I work in publishing, and there are loads of books that I've seen come out by uh, black female authors, mm. and those books don't get a loud celebration. They don't have a, a loud publishing mm. um, event because uh, the people who work at these publishing houses are like, well, we don't know what the audience is going to be, so maybe they won't sell. Yeah. And so when I was deciding to write, I was like, well, I'm going to write something that is commercial and mm. is going to be in that chiclet space. And that's why saying it's like the black Bridget Jones kind of allowed for me to be like, this is the level that we're reaching for. I don't want it to be published quietly. Yeah. And so the chiclet thing has kind of helped in a weird way just because people are like, oh, okay, it's accessible, even though it's about a black person. Cool. <laughs> okay. yeah. 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 No, I love that. That was a conscious decision of yours. Yeah, yeah, to yeah. To do that. Wow. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Also, it's like, you know, when parents feed their child, like, something nice with broccoli on it. Yeah. It's yeah. like, you know, yeah. you're getting it in there. Once exactly. They, if they're buying the book. I also just generally hate that we describe books as chocolate. Yeah. Like, all my favourite books are <laughs> categorically chocolate. Um... One of my favourite themes in Queenie was the way in which you really broke down the nuances of racism and white privilege. I think mm -hmm. growing up in, you know, a white liberal family, I was always told that, like, sexism is when you, like, punch a woman mm -hmm. and racism is when you're, like, mean to someone who doesn't look like you. And it was this very, like, black and white thing and yeah. it seemed very obvious. And I was like, oh, well, that's not something... I would ever do or anyone I know would ever do mm. so we're just not racist yeah. um, and I think it's obviously far more complicated than that and this book does an incredible job at breaking down the ways in which even the most well-intentioned of people can be really racist mm. <laughs> a lot of the time mm. um, this is kind of for both of you but what do you wish white women understood about black feminism and what do you think we can do better I mean or just what made you want to write about that well, I guess, like, thinking about the suffragette movement, mm. like, black women were actively told, like, this isn't for you, yeah. so, like, let's wait this out. And I don't think that's widely known at all. And so, like, when you understand it, you can see, like, from very early on, 
we have never been on mm. a level playing field and actually your feminism was more important than ours. And then thinking about just like where black women are in the food chain, it's like really very low. And even if we think about something like dating and how black women are responded to on dating sites, like we are the least desired, the least spoken to, the least replied to mm. set of people. And that's really, really important. And also just when you think about how that translates into our value, just like our feminism is kind of, or like we're just kind of trying to be seen as human mm. like a, a very base level um, and so that's why it was important for me to talk about that but not in a didactic way yeah. and explaining like okay this is how we're finding things mm. but to be like if you just see the life of this girl th like through her eyes for a year yeah. you can see all the things that are like really really wearing um, but in terms of what you need to know I guess it's kind of like yeah we are still trying to just be seen as like human people mm. who do feel all these things and you know I think the strong black woman is something that I talk about a lot because I'm really trying to get that out of people's heads that that is like the reality of us when yeah. actually it really can't be that's not that's not sustainable uh, it's not realistic um but yeah I think it's that thing it's just like this this superwoman and so like humanity is just lost it's also an excuse to treat someone badly if you're mm. like oh they're strong yeah you can say anything Whereas, yeah. you know, if we were, like, vulnerable, everyone, I think, would have a lot more guilt. Exactly. And just to add to, in terms of uh, how black women are perceived, I think we have to realise that there is a hierarchy of inclusion in society. Mm -hmm. It's really important to know where you are on that ladder. So, therefore, you know who else you're fighting for. Because if we are going to be feminists, if we're going to say we want equality for women, if it's not equality for all women, then it's not sustainable, mm. it's not real. But to add to the bit about how black women are seen, I think the other thing that you have to realize, particularly uh, if you are from the dominant group, is that there is something to learn from black women. Because of what we are up against, there is a certain level of resilience that we develop mm. as a result of that. And there's a certain level of self-acceptance that we have to have because you don't have the same outside validation. And actually, if you look at the insecurities that women we're riddled with in terms of how we perceive ourselves, I think there's something to be learned from that too. So I don't like the idea of only ever seeing us as a victim because mm. we're not. I think there is so much we have to teach society um, at large and I think that's why it's so important to have diverse friendship groups for that exchange and interaction to happen. I think especially at the moment when suddenly a lot of white women are like, wait, what? I can't get an abortion anymore? Like, this, all my rights are being taken away? Where did this come from? It's like, you know, definitely have usually something men. to learn. <laughs> um, this kind of leads on from that, but your 2017 book, Diversify, is one of my absolute Bibles on kind of Thank activism. And it's an, if no one has read it, it's a really incredible practical guide on how to change the world, basically. But you use this investment, you use this analogy of investment and how everyone knows that when you diversify your portfolio, which I actually have no idea what that means, but I've heard the phrase, <laughs> um, you're increasing your chances of success. It sounds yeah. like something good. Mm. Um, and your entire book is basically a case study for why diversity actually makes things better for everyone mm. in every way. Yeah. Uh, I know you wrote a whole book about this, but can you explain why diversity is such a crucial part of progress and yeah. how it helps you kind of no matter what. Of course. Well, I think the wonderful thing about um, 
inequality uh, is we know what works and we know what doesn't work. So we know what works by the way we treat privileged white men in society. We know that you send a child to the right school, you make sure they make the right connections through that, then they go on to higher education at the right institution, and then you know that once they get into the workplace, there's networks, there's sponsorship, there's so on to make sure that they progress. And we know what doesn't work by what we do for people that are from underprivileged communities. And if you look at what we've been able to achieve, achieve in society mm. in terms of the types of innovations and the types of progress that we've seen come from a very small sector of society, mm. imagine what our world would be if everybody was able to fulfill their potential to that level. So for me, this isn't about a sort of a nice thing to do. It's a smart thing to do. It's about saying that there is so much more that we've yet to achieve and experience in our world because there's such a big chunk of society mm. that is only allowed to get so far. The minute we allow that side of society to be all that they can be, everybody benefits. It's not a zero-sum game. Mm. It's not about if she wins, he loses. No, yeah. it's about creating a bigger pie. So for me, it's common sense. Amazing. Um, have you heard this thing about the algorithms that it's this AI. person did? This person made like this really geeky scientist at Twitter that was like, I don't think we actually need women working here and I'm going to prove it. <laughs> did this thing where he made like all these really high-powered algorithms that were the same uh -huh. and then all these slightly less high-powered algorithms that were different. I don't really know how this works, but you know, you can make, kind of make sense. And then gave them the mass equation and none of the high-powered ones could yeah. solve it because they were all the same yeah. and the low-powered ones could. And he was I like, believe it. oh, maybe we should hire a woman. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> My thing failed. <laughs> um, Candice, you've both worked behind the scenes in publishing and now very much in front of the scenes. Um, I think whenever we talk about representation or inclusion for like women or people of colour or any marginalised group, we... We're starting to realise it's the people in power that really have the choices, make the decisions. Um, in you know, in industries like TV and film, and I definitely know from my experiences in film and TV that like, while they might be getting more diverse on screen, the it's not behind. Yeah. And also in terms of women, you know, there's a lot of women on screen and very few women in these kind of really high yeah. positions. What was it like for you working within the publishing industry and? Being, I know you weren't responsible for the books that went out, but kind of seeing how that process worked. Uh, it was really tough mm. because I also look for myself in stories and you kind of feel responsible when you yeah. go into a space and you're like, oh, how do I change it to make it better? Um, which is why I started the Short Story Prize because I was like, okay, let's figure out a way to actually make these, these spaces more inclusive in terms of who are actually publishing. And mm. then if we're doing that, then the people who are hiring will have to think about like getting people in to make sure that those books that are they win for. Exactly. Um, and so it was a really tough thing. But the Short Story Prize was a really good thing and one of the authors is nominated for the he was shortly he was longlisted for the booker which wow. is like incredible um and so those things it shows that like you just need to like widen your pools and loads of people forget that people who are writing don't always have access to understanding what a literary agent is what yeah. an editor doesn't some people don't have the internet they just have stories um and so i'm really keen to like keep telling stories but also I wrote one because I was like, you know, I kind of want to make sure that if someone like me wants to write, instead of a publishing house saying, well, books by that sort of person don't work, yeah. now they can be like, okay, well, this book did, so we have to yeah. keep moving in that way. Everyone's going to be running around looking for their own queenie. 
Can I ask you a question, Candice? How much do you Ooh, think... Ooh, <laughs> Sorry, is that all right, Scarlett? <laughs> yeah, 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 I love it. <laughs> how much do you think having worked in the industry helped you know how to navigate the process? Because often that's the whole bit, isn't it? And that if you're not in there, you don't even know where to begin. I think it was a it was a it was great because like you know I could see what was going on I could see where the gap was and I could see like that it could be filled and also when you see what people I because I work in I worked in marketing so marketing is like reaching out to the people as opposed to reaching out to the press I yeah. guess um, and so I could see that there were people like me but also people who were not like me who were like you mm. who were like oh I'd quite like to have a different story by someone yeah. because I'm reading lots of the same things so I was in a position where I could kind of judge that and call that and then write something in that space um but yeah it was a it was a it was a really uniquely good thing to be seeing yeah I want to talk to you both about confidence because I think it can be really hard when we talk about gender specifically when we to talk about confidence because it kind of can end up making it seem like the reason that only three percent of female CEO, of CEOs are females because we didn't listen to enough motivational podcasts and obviously that's not everything lies on confidence and we live in a kind of structural society. But I do think something I see more and more with a lot of my friends who are women is that the thing that holds them back is their own confidence and their own self-belief. And they don't believe in themselves from such a young age that by the time it gets to the moment when they need to be pushing themselves or their work, they don't. And then that's how we end up where we are now. Um, June, you're someone I think of as incredibly confident and... You, you know, I feel like you are one of the people to really disprove this idea of if you can't be it, you can't see it because you were kind of the first to do a lot of the things that you did. How did you get the confidence to do the things you've done in your career? And how do you continue to kind of work on it? Um, I think in a way I was, so back to you, if you can't be it, you can't see it. I was lucky in that I did get to see it. So I... Um, was really lucky in that my school, so I went to a state school mm -hmm. um, uh, in a working class area, but my uh, area was becoming gentrified, so talking about all your gentrification, um, uh, as uh, I was uh, uh, growing up. So what happened was my school was a school that all the sort of middle class parents right. who didn't want to send their kids to private school sent their kids too. So our PTA had really good corporate links. So I got work experience. <laughs> they were good for that, right? <laughs> and so I got work experience when I was 16 to Kiss FM. Mm. And when I started working there, I was around all of these phenomenal women, amazing DJs who were doing what I wanted to do. Yeah. And a couple of them also happened to look like me. So I was around that and I thought, oh my God, wow, if they can do that, so can I. Um, and that for sure changed the trajectory of my life and so and and then also what happened to me was I had this horrific uh, car accident um, and you and I've spoken about you know when you've sort of uh, been incapacitated for a while and which meant I didn't walk for a year I went through all of this um, physiotherapy and so on and so on so by the time I was well enough to go into the workplace when you've been through that you're just like oh, whatever yeah. and so I just thought sod it I'm gonna go for it and so in the early years, when I would be in, you know, places where 
you know, things weren't necessarily set up for somebody like me. My, the thing I always said to myself was, okay, how can I change that? What needs mm. to be done here to change this? Um, and, and I think having a couple of early successes at a young age gave me that confidence. Yeah. And so that's just what I've done. And then I've had lots of no's and lots of failures. But I think if you're able to give yourself a couple of early successes, mm. it gives you a good foundation to be able to take the knockbacks better, I yeah. think. Yeah, even if you almost set them up for yourself. Yes. Whenever I'm set talking to teenage girls I know who are like trying to decide if the university they go to or whatever, I'm like, go for the one that you're going to be the cleverest in yes. because that's going to give yes. you like three years of people telling you you're, you're good. great. Whereas if you go to the one that you're slightly punching to get, you're just going to leave feeling like shit. Yeah, awful. And they'll be like, oh, actually, I'm quite clever. And also it's so true, I think. When I, I was had lots and lots of pain in wheelchairs and hell when I was a teenager and everyone says to you, like, it's going to make you so strong. And you're like, I don't care. Kind of wish I wasn't strong and just yeah. not going through this. But it does it make does, you when you come it? out the other yeah. side, yeah, in a very weird way. Um, one of the places I feel I see the most extreme dip in confidence with my friends is the things they make. You know, often they will be the people behind other people or, or like the people that say like, oh yeah, I write lots, but it's just for me and they never get it out there. How did you get the confidence to kind of push your story out into the world? Not your story, the story you wrote. I don't know, I think it's sorry, also just on confidence yeah. and men and women. There is this mad stat that is like a woman will go up for a promotion when she is like... 100%. Yeah, like 100%. Yeah, and 25%. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. it's like, crazy. there's like the huge, the spice set, it's just like even just at like that it's level. It's like, you know, when you get a job requirement and there's like 10 things, a woman won't go yeah. if she's got nine yeah. and a man will go if he's got four. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing, isn't yeah. it? I think now we it, like, know why the world is such a mess, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, th- I don't know, do you know what it is? I think it was just like me being like, I'm very determined to like represent. Yeah. And I think I was like, I just have to see what I can do. Um, and the confidence thing is like, I do, I'm not, I'm not very confident at all. Like so in my writing or like in my ability. And once I was describing all the Queenie stuff to my friend and she was like, sorry, I have to stop you because it sounds like you're talking about someone else. Like it's quite weird, but it's because like, I think it's like dissociation yeah. from it. Um, but it's it's just it was just being like this story has to, to to somehow be out there and people kind of have to read it and understand it and I you know in terms of like when we were sending it out I was sending it out with my agent and she sent it to loads of publishing houses so maybe like twelve mm. wow. and um, eight of them came back and they were like we don't really have we don't have any black people who work in our office so like we don't really know how we was like market it and like wow. you know I'm white so I feel like I can't really access it and my confidence like I it was already like not great and then it was just like I, I'm on the floor now yeah. um but then she was like you know as you as you as you know as we keep going like it's always it's going to happen it's going to be fine mm. um and you won't remember those people who said mm. no and actually I mean, I, I do because I have to still see them because I work in the industry. Um, I love you. But I can. <laughs> but now and I can. And also, you're not a straight white man. No, forget exactly. every time anyone says exactly. something bad to him. Um, and so, but you know, it's just. But your confidence is like it's such a wavering thing. I think all the time. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a lot of stuff about being grateful that I've had to learn. Yes, and I so I have to try not to be grateful to be in these spaces mm-hmm. because yeah. I know that like loads of like white middle class men are just not. They're kind of like, yeah, I deserve to be here. Where yeah. we, we should be like okay thank you so much for having yeah. me and you know shall as, I bake as, brownies when I come to the meeting exactly but like as much as I'm grateful I can't let that be my leading thing yeah. 
So it's like it's still all learning about like how to take compliments and how to like just know yeah. that you did something good. Yeah, cut sorries out for your emails. That's a huge new one for yes. me. Like try not to apologize every single email I send for just existing. It's hard, isn't it? It's yeah. really, really hard. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Or one of my things that I realized upon every email at the end, I write, no worries if not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually, yeah, loads of worries if not. <laughs> Very important. That's why I'm emailing you. Yeah. I need you to do this. Yeah, thing. I need yeah. a therapy appointment. Please, worries if not. <laughs> um, leading on from that, I really want to talk about mental health. Um, I spent three years of my life unable to leave the house because of crippling anxiety and depression and all the fun things. Um, and another reason I think Queenie is so extraordinary is the way that you talk about mental health. I think it's Thank almost you. like a pamphlet on why to go to therapy, mm. which is something I believe in hugely. And I also, you know, I've been very, very, very far down the mental health road, but something you really talk about which no, you know, in any of the centres I was ever in or anyone was the intersections between race and mental health. Mm. And I think that is something... Mental health can hit anyone and it can yeah. hit regardless of anything, but I do think there are things built into certain marginalised groups. It definitely happened to me when I was in a wheelchair and all this stuff that makes your mental health worse and we can't ignore that. We're currently really living in the middle of a mental health epidemic mm. and I want to ask both of you, if there's anything you think that we can do as a society to change the perception of mental health, but also to make people aware of the intersections between yeah. these issues. I think talking about it is like the main thing, right? Mm -hmm. Because I know that I also, I spent um, a year and a half in the house. I couldn't leave. And yeah. like going to the shop was like yeah, a huge thing. And my mum would have to like sit and like, eat with me mm -hmm. so I didn't think about it if someone um, rang the doorbell my day was ruined yeah yeah right I was like oh great I mean I'm like that now anyway yeah so I, <laughs> I just yeah. I don't want to talk to anyone yeah um but I think that we need to talk about it because for a long time I was just like no no I'm fine yeah and like, I was just I would always pretend that I was strong and I could I could weather things and deal with them but that's not realistic but also I mean like mental health resources in the country are terrible yeah they're really really bad and so I think that as much as it's good to talk about things, you know, I can say to, you know, therapy is a luxury. Yeah. Because yes. I can say to myself or my friends who yeah. need it, like, okay, we'll sign up to, like, the NHS therapy. And they come back and they're like, okay, well, the waiting six list months, is, like, yeah. six months. Um, and then if you want to go to private therapy, you mm -hmm. not everyone, we can't all afford yeah. that. Like, that's, you know, it's not realistic. And so I think talking about it is, like, the only thing I can think of and like mm. you know just like understanding I guess also understanding that lots of us are dealing with this stuff um because I remember where I fell short was thinking that I was the only one who was yeah, going through too. it and that I was just kind of like I'm a failure like I'm in my early 20s and everyone is like having fun yeah um but the reality of it is is not that yeah um and I think I guess I like just in terms of like self-care stuff like probably spend less time thinking that everyone's doing better than you yeah 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 because you can make any and I notice with myself I don't do huge efforts to make social media a positive place for me because mm -hmm. it was when I was very isolated it was the only connection I had to the outside world so it like means a lot to me and then whenever I'm down you look on it and suddenly everyone has something that you don't have and yeah. everyone it's just so interesting that you're looking at the same thing but your brain is telling you completely different things 
weird, isn't it? And I think it's also just remembering, I think it's really hard to remember that at different times in like your day, you will feel differently about yeah. things. And I think it's hard realizing that actually you spend a lot of time playing catch up with yourself. Yeah. Um, and just like as a woman, hormonally, there's so much going on and it's really hard to like get a grip on yeah. what is you and what is your yeah. hormones. What do you do to self-care and look after yourself? Um, it's funny. Um, so I'm one of those people that uh, is uh, obsessed with retreats and spiritual books nice. and self-help. I mean, I yeah. have been since I was a teenager. Um, and I remember uh, a few, quite a while ago, I had a big breakup. And, um, you know, I was in the middle of heartbreak and all of that stuff and everything that comes with it. And, you know, the sort of knots in your stomach. And I don't use social media. I don't use Facebook or any of those things. But I would get my friends to log on to their Facebook so I could see what he was doing and all that. <laughs> I was obsessed with all that stuff. And so, anyways, I started to go to all these retreats. And um, <laughs> I went to uh, a retreat by a man called Alan Watts, um, who is uh, the Dalai Lama's uh, chief representative in America. I was living in America at the time. And so the whole uh, point of the retreat was the, the, the secret to happiness. Mm. And so I was at this retreat for five days and every day he had us meditating for hours, hours, hours. I mean, I was like, I've had enough of this nonsense. I paid <laughs> this just to sleep. And I was like taking my um, uh, uh, sleeping bag with me and falling asleep throughout the whole thing. And he was meditating, 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 meditating. Anyway, so by the end of it, I'm like, I've had enough. I'm leaving. Yeah. And then he said, and this completely changed my life. And he said to the whole group, I know you're all incredibly frustrated that I've had you meditating for the past four days. And we were like, yes. <laughs> and so then he said, the reason I did that is because what we need is we need a whole revolution in terms of how we treat mental health so that we treat mental health the same way we treat physical health. Mm. And he said, meditating is the equivalent of going to the gym. And he said, yeah. and what I want you to be able to do is to be able to control your mind in such a way that whatever life throws at you, your brain becomes the equivalent of an Iron Man's body. Meaning that your right, meaning yeah. that your recovery time is so much quicker yeah. because you have that control. And so what I would say to anybody is meditation. I have found it to be so healing through some of the worst times in my life. Just having that downtime where I'm able to sort of step back from my thoughts and actually observe my thoughts and mm. realize that it's not me. So yeah. I'm in awe of that. I have tried. But so don't go to times. Alan Watts' thing. Okay, yeah, that sounds like <laughs> There are easier health. ways to learn this. Um, something else I get asked endlessly is how we bring men into the discussion around feminism, how we make men better allies, what men can do. Um, what do you guys think and what do you do with the men in your lives? Yeah. Um, I think this one is so important. Yeah. Um, and I think this is the bit that's missing from... Uh, the whole feminist there are a few debate. Dads here, I think. <laughs> <laughs> In that, you know, they tend to be uh, women-only spaces, and we're sort of preaching to the converted, as it were. And we have to figure out how to bring men uh, with us because the patriarchy has not only been detrimental to women, but it's been incredibly yeah. detrimental to men. In that they are functioning from such a small uh, percentage of their capacity, mm -hmm. and I think that actually, if we're able to have an honest conversation with men so that they are not 
scared of female power so yeah. that they understand that feminine power is actually there to enhance their power too. And I think yeah. we see it. That's why we're obsessed with power couples. Because <laughs> when we see it, we know there's something yeah. special about that when you have a relationship with, between a man and a woman that are equal. That's yeah. why we love Barack and Michelle Obama. Yeah. There's no way he would be who he is without her. And so I think we must, if, if this thing's going to be sustainable, we have to figure out how to bring men along. Yeah. It's hard, isn't it? Because sometimes I'm a bit like, we're already doing so much work. Yeah, we so don't to educate to you is another it. thing. But I was at an event yesterday um, morning. It was Stormzy has an imprint, which is Murky Books, yeah. um, which is a brilliant thing. And um, this this black guy came up to me, who's the same age as me, mm -hmm. um, and he was like, "Hi, you're right." And I was like, "Hi, I'm fine, thanks. How are you doing?" And he was like, "Yeah, I'm called Dwayne." And I was like, "Hey, Dwayne, how are you doing?" Um, and he was like, "I'm from South London." And I was like, "Me too, Dwayne. That's really great." And he was like, "So I've seen your book about." Um, and I want to read it, but I'm a boy, and it feels weird because you're a girl, and I feel like if I'm reading about a girl's story, then what, like, what does that mean for me? And it made me so sad. Yeah. I felt really sad for him yeah. because I was like, you're missing out on like things that you could like. Because I know yeah. like, so much of the book is about South London. Like, it's just kind of yeah. like you know this place yeah. and this space. And she could be his sister. She could be his right? girlfriend. Yeah. She could be so many things in his She life. could be him. Yeah. I yeah. identified yes. with Harry Potter for 10 years of exactly. my childhood. Yeah. Yeah. Like, really good. He can identify with Queenie. Exactly. <laughs> it's true. Um, and so I basically had to speak to him for like quite a while where I had to kind of explain like why mm -hmm. it was okay that he would engage in that. And I was like, you know, like, unless your preference is, is men, your, your partner will be a woman. Yeah. And it would be nice, you know, I was like, D would you not want to talk to her about that? You know, I was just kind of like, but like really gently and like talking about this stuff. And he said, um, you know, there's this thing called like Black Girl Fest. Like, yeah. that's, that's exclusionary, isn't it? For like me. And I was like, well, not really, because, you know, you could go and create your own space. Like, I was like, yeah. these are safe spaces that people have created. And so it was like a really long discussion with someone who genuinely, he wasn't angry, he wasn't aggressive, mm. he just didn't really understand, like, what his place was. And I think yeah. there is a lot of that misunderstanding. And I think it's just kind of about, like, having to explain things in yeah. a really, like, non-aggressive way and yeah. just way, like, being, you know, inclusive. And yeah. so, yeah, but it, it's, it takes work and time. And at the end, I was a bit like, oh, Dwayne. But it's also Dwayne. Yeah, and I think that's another thing, as I always say, is like, that is a huge gift that you gave Dwayne. Yeah. And if it had been a day where you were more tired, you yeah. don't have to do that. Because exactly. sometimes I think a lot, I'm now because of this book, like the person that everyone mm. comes to and emails and checks in on to see if what they're doing is right and I'm like some days I just want to be like yes fine yeah. and then, um, thank you all so much for being here thank you for listening thank you for showing up you are all amazing and very beautiful might I add now the lights have gone up thank Thanks, you Charlotte. thank you here you go You have been listening to Feminist Don't Wear Pink, the podcast, hosted by me, Scarlett Curtis. The book is available everywhere books are sold and 10% of every copy goes to the UN charity Girl Up. It's also available as an ebook and audiobook read partially by me if you prefer to listen. If you liked this podcast, please remember to rate, review and subscribe. It really helps the podcast and it helps us reach people who might not think they're feminists. We'll be back 
next week with another amazing guest. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a feminist. Have a great day. Thank you.